Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. Um, most of my guests um, receive a spiritual impression to reach out and wonder if their story could be helpful for others. And maybe you're somebody wondering if you should, could do that. And anybody's welcome to reach out and be on the podcast if you feel your story would help others. You can just DM me on social media. Um, but I got a, a DM on, I think, Messenger a few months ago from my new friend Marcus Bowers. And he shared a little bit of his story, and that led to him being on the podcast today. So welcome to the podcast, Marcus. Hi, Richard. Thank you for having me. And I'll give a little bit of an overview, and then I'll turn over to Marcus to share his story. Uh, Marcus is um, lives in Virginia, I think northern um, Virginia in the D.C. suburbs. I've got that correct. He is in his mid-40s. He's 45. He's in a mid-singles ward. He's in the bishopric of a mid-singles ward. Um, he is single. He's straight. He um, graduated from BYU in um, tuba um, performance and then went to grad school. He's a master's in music theory and a second master's in organizational psychology and is currently a project manager. Um, but Marcus' life, like a lot of people's lives, has um, had some curves and some surprises and he will talk about um, serving a mission, but coming home a couple weeks later, he'll talk about his journey with depression, suicidal ideation, including in being in a psych ward. That's something that has a lot of stigma around it. Really admire Marcus willing to talk about that part of his life. He served in Iraq. Um, he's in the reserve. I believe he spent about 10 months in Iraq. He's wondered if he's going to stay in the church and has had a long journey with the church. Obviously, since he's serving in a bishopric, he's in the church and um, believes in the church. Um, but as I felt, as I read Marcus' message, listeners, I felt, um, and I get a little emotional, just the courage of Marcus to want to share his story. And this is just love to hopefully help others that are walking complicated roads that feel they may be alone, that feel like no one, you know, if they really understand my story love me and how am I going to get through this because I've never heard anybody just kind of walking the complicated road that I am or feeling some of the feelings I'm feeling. So we said a prayer before we started and our hope is that this will help you or if you've got somebody in your life you love and you're looking for mirror insights to help them, maybe some of the things Marcus shares in his story will help you. And um, that's our prayer and I'm praying for Marcus just to have a calm mind and a calm heart to share his story. Is that okay for an introduction, Marcus? It sounds great. Thank you. All right. You're on, my friend. Uh, where to start? I was born and raised in Utah. I grew up in West Valley, graduated from Taylorsville High School. Uh, when I was in high school, I found out about the, that the Army National Guard had a band. I didn't know that. My high school choir teacher in Utah was the commander of the local National Guard band. So I started doing that um, just as I was starting my senior year of high school. Um, went to Army basic training right after I graduated from high school and then came home. And as soon as I got home, my birthday was coming up quick. So I went ahead and started working on mission papers. Uh, I met with my bishop and then later with my stake president. Everything was fine with my bishop. But then when I met with my stake president, he identified some things and he said, hey, I think... I think we need to, you need a little bit of help here. So that was the first time I ever met with anyone uh, to discuss depression and anxiety and whatnot. He referred me to LDS Family Services. Um, so that was, that was kind of a curveball. I wasn't really surprised, kind of surprised, but not completely surprised. But um, then while I was doing that, I decided to start college. So I was going to school at the University of Utah for a little while. And then eventually I made it into the MTC uh, summer of 1998. I was in the MTC for about two weeks, uh, had some sort of, um, I had difficulties again with anxiety and depression, and I was released from missionary service. I was really hurt. I was really frustrated. I thought, you know, if this was God, what God wanted me to do, why did I fail? Um, so I went back, I was working, I was working construction at the time. I did that for a little while, but I had built a relationship with the tuba instructor at Brigham Young University. So I ended up going to BYU. I started at BYU in January of 1999. Um, 
it's kind of a strange place to be as a 20-year-old kid because at the time I should have been on a mission. I was lucky enough to fall in with some really good roommates. They were a couple years older than me. They were return missionaries, but they didn't know really a lot of my story, but they just they were good. They were a good example of what it meant to live the gospel. Um, I fell in with some good roommates, some good friends. A lot of people that, you know, as they learned my story that, hey, I'm here at BYU, active practicing member of the church, but I'm not a return missionary. That's okay. I don't, that doesn't matter. So I was really grateful for that. Um, during my time at BYU, I had kind of this thing in the back of my head that I was a failure for not serving a mission. But sometime in my senior year, um, I, I, well, there wasn't a specific moment in, in my last year at BYU, but eventually I came to some sort of a piece that I was not a failure because I was active in church. I was involved in church. I was, you know, I was doing what I could to keep my covenants. And that for all those things and more, I was I was a success. Um, that was incredibly validating to hear, to feel that from the Holy Ghost, to know that that my life, that I was living my life right. Um, graduated from BYU, uh, I moved to New York City with the intention of getting a master's and a PhD so I could be a music professor. I was in the Utah National Guard. I transferred to the New York Army National Guard. Within six or eight months, we ended up getting a phone call, and ended up. Uh, deploying with the New York Army National Guard. We spent about six months in upstate New York, a place called Fort Drum, and then we went to Iraq, where we were for about 10 months. So we were part of the first National Guard band since World War II to be placed in the combat zone. So that was an interesting experience. I learned a lot of things about myself, made some really good friends, uh, people that I'm still friends with to this day. Um, while I was in Iraq, I had a change of heart, you know, because my intention, like I said, was to get a master's and a PhD so I could be a music professional. I just realized that's probably not for me because um, I have a lot of other interests and my music studies were precluding those other interests. So I came home, I finished my master's degree in music theory, but then I worked for a while and then I found another master's program for organizational psychology at Columbia University. So I went and did that and had a really great experience and learned a lot of great things. That led me into working in human resources, uh, later finance, and then uh, I ended up moving down to Northern Virginia uh, a number of years ago, and I've been working in government contracting, government consulting since then. One of the key experiences that I had in New York City, though, was was after I graduated. After I graduated from Columbia, I had an internship working for a financial services firm. I worked in HR originally, but then I transitioned over the business side and I was working as a credit analyst. Um, at first, I was excited about this change, but I fell in with a really difficult manager. Um, I probably didn't respond the best either, but there was just a lot of different struggles. And after working in this situation for several months, um, I felt a, a very strong, a very strong desire to just take my life and stop it all. Um, I, uh, the Lord placed the right resources in my path, though. Uh, we had a really good employee assistance program. I was able to go and meet with them for a little while. Uh, and after meeting with a therapist counselor with my employee assistance program, we, all, we decided that it was best for me to go, to go into a psych ward. So I went into the psychiatric ward at Bellevue Hospital in New York City, where where I spent about a week and a half, and that was over Thanksgiving of 2013. So over the years, I've, I have been comfortable in talking about depression and anxiety, but for whatever reason, talking about suicidal ideation, especially to the point where the psychiatric ward is the better option, that has been a very taboo subject for me. It's been very difficult for me to talk about. But I know there's a lot of other people out there that, that have struggled at similar levels or worse. So I've been a fan of your show for a long time. So I thought, you know, maybe I could maybe I could get on and tell some of my story to help others. So I was in the psych ward for about a week and a half and then came out. Um, my company arranged for me to get laid off a few months later. They they understood that this boss was problematic, that this manager was problematic. And after getting laid off, uh, I was able to move down to Northern Virginia and kind of restart a life for myself. 
Um, since then, I've, like I said, I've worked in government contracting, government consulting. Currently, I'm a project manager leading a team of learning and development professionals. Um, I'm in a good place now. I enjoy my job. I enjoy what I'm doing, uh, not just with my professional work, but also with my work in my singles ward. Um, currently, I'm serving as the second counselor in the bishopric, and it's it's been a good experience for me. Um, I'm still trying to figure out what I want to do professionally. I'm, like I said, I'm in my mid-40s. I'm not sure that I want to be doing this kind of stuff for the rest of my life, but it's it's been a journey. So um, well, that's a lot of my story. I know that you've read more of my material, uh, more of the things I shared with you earlier. Um, another story to share, uh, back in 2018, um, my father died. I know a lot of, a lot of people struggle with, I mean, this is part of life. You know, our siblings, our parents eventually are going to die. My father died in May of 2018. Um, a few months prior to that, I had been traveling in Nepal with some friends and, uh, when I was traveling in Nepal, our, our guide at that particular time had been a Buddhist monk. And so he was showing us a lot of different things and helping us understand Buddhism as we were touring monasteries and different things like that in Nepal. That coupled with the death of my father and some other things that I had had, uh, other, some other things that had happened really led me to a lot of faith crises or through a series of faith crises. You know, why am I going to church? What do I actually believe? You know, what is actually true? Um, I remember for months on end, praying and praying and praying and not feeling like anything, not feeling that I was receiving anything from God. Um, at one point, I talked with my bishop because I was the ward clerk at the time. And I said, hey, I, I just don't know if I can do this. I just don't know if I can do this. And he just encouraged me to just keep going. So for several months, I was going through the motions. And had I not been the ward clerk, I probably would have stopped, you know, but I just I felt this sense of obligation. So I kept going. Um, yeah. And, you know, I've, I've had probably three or four or five of these different faith crises over the years where I, it's kind of an out of body experience. Um, once upon a time, I saw this pithy little cartoon where it shows two characters on either side of a six or a nine, depending on which way you're looking at it. And, you know, and they're arguing, it's a six, it's a nine, you know, and I think about that, you know, from the perspective of religion. I mean, because how many religions uh, state or claim that they're the true religion, you know, or that their religion is the best religion? I mean, I was looking at this thing from one perspective that was reinforced by my family, by my friends, by my culture, by so much of my world. Uh, but then as I took the time to step out, out of that and saw things from the other side, it was really hard for me to look at it again from the perspective that I had before. Um, it was, you know, these things have really rocked my world over the years, uh, for lack of a better expression. But at the end, I, I came to the conclusion that participation in church is good for me. I still have a lot of doubts. I really struggle with how the church, uh, uh, how the church marginalizes LGBTQIA plus uh, individuals. Uh, I struggle with some of the things that the church has done over the years. Um, but I. At the same time, I know that participation in church is good for me personally, emotionally, spiritually, um, on so many levels. So despite these conflicts, I'm still here. Um, got some questions for you. I don't know if you want to share more of your story or do you want to go to some questions? Uh, I'm trying to think of what else to share. I don't know. Um, a lot of the things that have been on my mind is that I don't feel, I mean, we all have different experiences, but I guess in a lot of ways, my experience felt atypical because I'm a six or seven generation member of the church. Um, both my parents and all my siblings, including my sister before me had served missions. And that was a really big, I think that was a weighty thing for my father to realize that I wasn't going to be serving a mission, that I wasn't going to have that moniker of return missionary. Um, I was studying music. You know, when I moved to New York City, I knew I, I ran into a lot of people who were working in finance or going to law school or doing these different things. And I was over here. Hi, I'm getting a master's degree in music theory. So what are you going to do with that? Uh, I don't know. So I just remember feeling a lot of these a lot of these strange pressures to fit into a certain mold. 
And those things just don't work. You know, we're all so very different. And I think that I think it's useful for us to explore these molds, these expectations of society and actually take a look at them to see if they're actually serving us. Um, I, I just think we can do better for each other and for ourselves. So I don't know. That's some of those are some of my thoughts. Um, some of my other thoughts that have come from, you know, being in the military, living in New York City, you know, also living in Northern Virginia is just being exposed to a lot of different people. Uh, I, I feel like I, I feel like I see so many people, especially on social media these days, that that are just so intent on on sticking in their ideological corners. You know, they assume that anyone who disagrees with them is either evil or corrupt or or ignorant or some combination of those. Uh, I just have known so many good people that have such wildly different ideas about life in the world that I can't discount their experience. This is something I've been really frustrated with lately, and I'm sure you've seen this in our society as well. It's just how we're just not talking to each other anymore. You know, we get into these echo chambers and it doesn't really serve anyone. So, I mean, at the end of the day, I can only control myself. So, and it's interesting. I'll just share this story. A few weeks ago or a few months ago now, uh, I met someone. We started chatting. You know, we've been, we've been building a friendship. But then I realized that ideologic, uh, ideologically and politically, she's she's a little different than me, and that took me a minute to kind of t- come to terms with, because I like to preach listening to all kinds of different people, all kinds of different viewpoints. But then I realized this new friend had some pretty different viewpoints of, than me. It took me a minute to kind of come to terms with the fact that I need to practice what I preach. So, so in this, in this friendship that I'm that you know, with this new friend of mine, I've purposely made it a point to, to stay focused on the things that we can agree on, the things that we enjoy about each other. So I don't know, that's kind of been an experience. It's been an interesting experience the last few weeks. Um, another thing that I'm a big advocate of is, is that Elder Uchtdorf used this analogy a few years ago in general conference. Church should not be an automobile showroom where we're going off to show how wonderful and great we are, but it really should be uh, more like an automotive repair shop or a hospital where we come together to get better. Um, I'm actually, uh, our bishopric is going to be teaching a a fifth Sunday lesson this coming Sunday, so a lot of these things have been on my mind already. But I want to show people that, that churches are a really good place to be expressing doubts and concerns and struggles because that's a community of believers, you know. What a better forum to get strength and love uh, from believers than at church. So sometimes I wish we could drop some of the pretenses. I know in a singles ward, you know, we're peacocking around. We're trying to get the attention of of, of women or men, depending on on what you, what you're looking for. Um, but it, something I try to do consciously at church is to drop those pretenses and to be open and honest with my struggles in hopes that other people can feel valid in their struggles and to hope that they can feel empowered to share as well. So, so those are a lot of my thoughts. Those are a lot of my experiences. Um, thank you, Marcus. You covered a lot of ground in 20 minutes. Um, and um, gives us a foundation to have some further discussion. But on behalf of our listeners, just thank you for bravely opening up your heart to all of our listeners and your lived experiences and your desire to create Zion. I love this um, teaching from Elder Uchtdorf about what church should be. I love that. Go back to the, you know, this is 2013. You were in the psych ward. I guess they still call them psych wards. That's always had some stigma around them. But any more... You know, as you think about that, you're 10 years removed from that. Do you think that was a long buildup of just lots of stuff that led to increased suicidal ideation? Um, Now that you can kind of look back and, or do you think it was more of an acute situation with the events of the immediate, you know, immediate time? It was definitely a longer buildup. I mean, I, I had some unique pressures in that. 
during that time, not the least of which was was the boss that I was working with at the time, but also some other things. But yeah, it was kind of the culmination of a lot of stress over many months, many years, even. What would you, and this is helping people that maybe, you know, we both want to have, you know, part of this purpose, this podcast is help people not choose to die by suicide. And yeah. I'm, you know, I just see so many um, people that we lose to suicide that it's heartbreaking. And, and I don't know if you could, you know, this is you kind of going back to 20, 2008 or when you came over your mission or pre-mission, if there'd been better understanding within yourself and society and um, mental health was more normalized, do you, is there things you would have done earlier or things you would invite people to do earlier before it kind of becomes a crisis um, and even a potential suicide attempt? Therapy. Number one is therapy. This is something I've thought about before. You know, the military is interesting to me in a lot of ways because the military tries to lean forward with so many things. And we have suicide prevention, awareness training, and these different things like that. Uh, while that's great, while that's useful, it would I think it would be more useful to have the resources much further before that so individuals feel like they have somewhere to go when they're struggling with life, not waiting until things are so bad that they're at a breaking point that suicide seems like the best option. Um, I know the military still has stigma around uh, mental health, though, too. They're working to change that, but there still is a lot of stigma that, that remains. Um, but yeah, I think therapy is, is one of the best things that anyone can ever do, or rather good therapy. At least there's a lot of bad therapists out there, unfortunately. Um, talk to people that are suicidal right now. What would your 10 years, I assume you've been stable emotionally the last 10 years. It may not just be linear where you've had just positive days and I don't know how much you've, you know, been stable last 10 years, but talk to people that are suicidal right now are really in a bad spot. Since you're kind of 10 years removed from the worst situation you've been in. It gets better. It gets better. There are things you can do to change things. Um, just getting outside, spending time, exercising. There are different things like this that you can do. Um, but I don't know. It it will get better. Things can change. Um, suicide is tempting. I get it. But the alternative is much worse. The idea of, of taking your life in the wake of the disaster that, that comes from that um, you know, it, it doesn't really improve anything other than, I don't know. It, I have a lot of mixed emotions from it because I understand where someone is coming from that because they're in so much pain. They just want the pain to stop. Um, but it can get better. It really can get better. Um, I, especially for those who are members of the church, something I realized that when I was in the, when I was in the psych ward, I just realized how many resources I had at my disposal, you know, other people I was with in the psych ward, you know, one guy, when he was getting out, he was going to be, he was planning to go to a shelter, you know, uh, the roommate that I had, he refused to give his name because being in the psych ward meant that he had a place to sleep and food to eat. Um, so members of the church, especially, we have a lot of resources that I think it's easy to take for granted. Um, that's something I've noticed when I moved from Provo to New York City and from New York City down to Northern Virginia, just going and participating in the church community. All of us, it's really easy to have a network of friends, just kind of wherever you go. Um, you show up and you get involved in the community and you know people. I don't, I'm not sure how much that answers your question. That's helpful. I, I understand the appeal of depression, but it's really not the best way to move forward. And listeners, I, you know, these are subjects I wish we could normalize talking about. Um, in my own congregation, my own stake, you know, I'm not, I've never heard us, except a young man in church, talked about a younger generation, you know, a young man, 16 or 17, did talk about his friend who had some suicidal elation. But I think, you know, talking about suicide doesn't cause someone to be suicidal. I think it creates 
a feeling that you're safe um, if you're talking about this subject and people open up to you. So um, if you're a local leader, I think, you know, Sister Roberto gave a great talk in general conference about the suicide of her father. And I don't think that caused increase in suicidality, but normalize this is not a spiritual weakness, Marcus or anybody that's working through it's a mental health issue. And strong men that go to the army and do really hard things. Um, you know, this is part of the journey. And I worry about a culture for men where it's harder to be vulnerable and open up and seek resources. Um, and so you're brave to do this, Marcus, and it helps others say if Marcus can do it, I can do it. But I just encourage all of us in our circles of influence to normalize conversations about suicidal ideation, people that are suicidal. I will respond if you open up as parents to our kiddos, because um, I just think it helps people get the resources they need. More thoughts on this topic before I transition to another question. Yeah, definitely. Um, your words just now reminded me of something else I wanted to share. I think the worst kind of suffering we can go through is that suffering in isolation. So if we think we're the only one, oh, I'm the only one that's, that's really considering suicide right now. I'm the only one that's this bad off where suicide feels like, like the most, like the best option. Oh, no, 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 that's terrible. No, the things that you're talking about, about normalizing these extreme feelings of depression, you know, these desires to just end it all through suicide, you know, we should be talking about those things. We should be opening up. That's what good friends should be for. That's, you know, I can't emphasize that enough that, you know, we need to be sharing our struggles. Uh, uh, we need to be sharing our struggles with each other. And as we do that, that will immediately take the power from those. As we normalize those things, we will make those things less powerful in our lives. Um, talk about um, what you'd say to yourself as an early release missionary um, with your life now very different than sort of the typical LDS male. So you're home after two weeks, you don't go back out, you go to BYU and being an early release missionary is, you know, be something that happens to really great LDS youth. Talk about now that this is, you know, 20 plus years in the past, talk about what you'd say to yourself or others that are just walking this road or to those trying to say the right thing to somebody, a kiddo that's come home, a friend, a member of the congregation. I hope this isn't a controversial answer, but it might be. Um, <laughs> I would, I would tell that kid to find your peace with God and only you can find that peace. Um, I would tell that kid that, that maybe serving a mission isn't in the cards for you, but that's okay. Um, what matters is you're staying close to the Holy ghost. And that's something, you know, uh, something I didn't share before, but I'll share now. Um, about, uh, about eight or nine months after I had started at BYU, I started getting this thought, oh, maybe I need to go back into the mission field. You know, I, I stabilized somewhat emotionally and whatnot. And I spent a couple of weeks praying about it, going to the temple and, and doing these different different things. And eventually I came to the conclusion, no, the mission field was not right for me. And that I came, I went up to, so I grew up in West Valley. I was down in Provo going to school, general conference weekend in October of, I guess that would have been 2000. October of 99 general conference weekend came around. So I went up to my parents' house for general conference that weekend. And after, after uh, one of the sessions, I went for a walk around the neighborhood with my dad and I told him, Hey, I just, this doesn't seem right for me to go back into the mission field. This is how I got to this step by praying and fasting and going to the temple and studying from the scripture and doing different things like that. And my father said to me, well, your process is right. You're not going to the bar. You're not going to all these worldly sources to seek to figure out whether or not you should be going on a mission or whether or not you should be going back on the mission. You've done it right by going to the right sources. And I remember just feeling incredibly validated by my father, knowing that he trusted my process. Um, I would tell kids that, you know, everyone's life looks a little bit different. And if you don't serve a mission, that's perfectly okay. Talk about, you're giving great answers, Marcus. Um, you didn't, we haven't directly talked about this. It's inferred, you know, you, you're in a singles ward, you're in a bishopric. 
Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm assuming if I had you on the podcast at age 19 or 18, you'd talk about your hopes for the future, being married and having a family, and that hasn't happened. You still hope that could happen. But some, you know, I'm just the complexities of, and especially a church that values families and so much of our cultures built around families. Talk about how you've navigated that um, and how we can better support single Latter-day Saints and, you know, wherever you want to go with that question. Sure. I had a, a, a friend of mine in my ward a couple of years ago. She, she got up on Fast and Testimony Sunday and she said something that was kind of profound, kind of funny too. She said that I am grateful that every single person in this room is single right now. Her rationale for that was, is because they were single, because we were single, we were a part of her life. Um, yeah, the church is very family oriented. Yeah. And we have this, this notion or this doctrine that in order for us to be fully exalted and to become fully like God, we have to get married in the new and everlasting covenant. Um, I think that we can forget that that journey to the celestial kingdom could look very different for every person. Um, I mean, yes, we need to be doing everything we can to keep the commandments of God for sure, that, which includes marriage. But whether that's in this life, next life, you know, I think there's a lot more flexibility to that than we may be aware of. Um, I've tried dating. You know, I do try to date. I try to get out there as much as I can. You know, a lot of my struggles with uh, anxiety and depression center around, center around my own inadequacies. I know plenty of people will tell me, oh, Marcus, you've got so many things going for you. But no, I just, you know, there's so many different things that I struggle with that honestly, I think keep me from a good, healthy relationship. But I know that the Lord knows my weaknesses. He knows my strengths. He knows where I'm at. And he will judge me according to me and my capabilities and how I have chosen to magnify and serve in his kingdom. Um, There are so many different ways that we can do those things. And it doesn't just have to be doesn't just have to include marriage and children and whatnot. Um, some people I visit with, and this is some of my own feelings growing up. I got married in my late twenties listeners and my wife and I have been in a YSA ward and talking to people that are unmarried, but um, our doctrine doesn't teach this, but sometimes people feel not complete or not whole um, or they they, their life is turning out different than they thought it would or even promised in their patriarchal blessing about marriage. And so their conclusion is to look inward. <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, I did some of that in my late 20s, and that wasn't very healthy for me um, as I figured this was all my fault. I was single, and clearly um, the Lord had a plan for me. And if I could just figure out what was wrong on my end, then everything would work out. And I, I wouldn't think. I wish I could go back to my 28, 7, 28-year-old self and give that person a little more love and help that person to feel complete and whole now. Um, and, he, and I've kind of answered that question a little bit for me, but I'd love you to talk about, you know, how you've navigated that and advice you well, have you for other a, people. Yeah, I, I, uh, what you're talking about right now just reminds me of an experience that I had not too long ago. Um, there was someone that I had started to date very recently she's great she's wonderful but i just didn't feel comfortable about moving forward with the relationship and i told her hey you're great but this just doesn't this just isn't going to work for me and i remember the next day just feeling absolutely wrecked it's like what is my problem you know i feel so incredibly broken why can't i get into a relationship um then i was chatting with my cousin she's one of my best friends she's a licensed clinical therapist and whatnot and she said well what if you're not broken what if you're exactly where the Lord needs you to be right now? So I just, when she said that to me, my heart just kind of stopped like, okay, yeah, I need some self-love. I need some self-acceptance. It's just like that 19 year old kid that was released from the mission field and was worried about the stigma of not being quote unquote return missionary. Um, you know, my path was a little bit different, but that's okay. What if I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be? Um, I love your friend, what she said. And um, it makes me think, and I can never say, quite say what my wife used to say to the wise. I think she said, 
oh, help me if I can say this right. I always misquote my wife. It's better to be um, single and wait a second. It's I'll just say the concept. It's better to be single and wish you'd be married versus married and wish you should be were single. <laughs> I think what she was trying to say there is sometimes we get married because there's just cultural pressure. We feel that's our next step in life. And this is part of the a thing that I invite everybody to do is write your own story um, with God. And, and it may look different than other Latter-day Saints stories. And let's create a culture that supports other stories and helps people to feel complete in their story. And so I love this answer is I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. This isn't yeah. like something's gone wrong in Marcus Bauer's life. And if just this or this or this had, hadn't happened, you'd be married and have a family. Sure, you'd love to be married and have a family. But I also like the idea that, you know, something hasn't gone wrong here. And this is God's plan for you. And you're exactly where you're supposed to be. And I remember being in Israel and our tour guide said, if God could take us all to these top of these mountains and the end of our life and help us see our life, I think we'd see it um, in the totality of our mortal experience and give us more love for where we are right now, even though it may not be what we hope for or what the culture expects of us. More thoughts on just being single or what you'd say to other single people or, you know, what you'd say to your 25-year-old self who probably you know, wanted, thought he would be married at your age? Well, um, as I talked about earlier with this idea of serving a mission and, and not serving a mission and then feeling like a failure because of that, I think that uh, that answer that I had received a few years later when I was a senior at BYU, that I was not a failure because I was active in church. I was, I was magnifying callings. I was active, very anxiously engaged. I was a good person and kind person. You know, these things are so much more important markers than whether or not someone is married, whether or not someone is a return missionary, because we've all known horrible people who happen to be return missionaries. We all have known horrible people who happen to be married. Um, these things, being kind and considerate and thoughtful of others, those things are much harder to quantify. Those are not checklist things so much like a mission or marriage. But those things are, I honestly think those things are far more important you know, how are we treating our fellow men, fellow men and women? How are we, how are we acting in the world? I love that. Um, thanks for being so open about faith crisis. I think you said you've had three or five and <laughs> um, three to yeah. five. And, um, the, the, um, talking about faith crisis, one of the first ones that I really remember, well, one of the first ones actually being released from the MTC and, you know, just feeling abandoned by God. It's like, if this is what you'd wanted me to do, why did I fail? And, you know, I was going to church, but I was living in Utah. So what do you do on Sunday? You go to church in Utah, but I wasn't really, I wasn't really engaged mentally or spiritually, but little by little, I found my way back enough that I was able to go to BYU um, and be involved in that. That was actually one of the best things that helped me at that time. Cause I moved to Provo, I moved in with roommates. I had moved away from home. It's kind of ex escaping some pressure from family. Um, so that was, that helped me make that transition back to faith. Um, another time when I really struggled was when I was, uh, living in New York city, I was 30, 30, turning 31. And I was, I was moved out of this YSA ward and moved into a geographic ward. Um, at the time I was excited about the transition. I was just kind of ready for a change, but I got into this geographic ward, the Harlem ward. It was great. Wonderful. Uh, they said, Ooh, a Melchizedek priesthood holder. Let's make him a clerk. Yoink. And they put me in the, they made me a financial clerk and I was in the clerk's office all the time at church. And after a few months, I just didn't want to go to church anymore because I wasn't interacting with anyone. Um, and then after, after a few months of that, I decided it's time for me to make a change. So I moved, I, uh, I moved, I stayed in New York city. I moved to a different place. I went to a, a new ward. They made me the ward chorister. And all of a sudden I was up in front of everyone every Sunday. And it was just a much better experience for me personally. Um, and then other times when I was struggling with my faith, uh, were around, the, was around the time when I first moved down to Northern Virginia from New York city, you know, just these different questions. And like I said, learning to shift my perspective and to genuinely see things from other perspectives, it just caused me to question everything that I had been taught before, you know, 
I mean, I have all these reference to tell me that these things are true, but are they? Um, Thomas McConkey, I'm sure how familiar you are with him. He wrote his wonderful book on navigating Mormon faith crises. Um, I just absolutely loved it. Um, I've read that book a couple of times now. But he helped me to feel normal, that I was not abnormal, that I wasn't, that it wasn't a lack of faith. It wasn't a lack of anything. I was just being a normal human being going through normal human progression because suddenly I was looking for different things in faith. So, yeah. And then, like I talked about before, I was about 39 or 40. I had been traveling in Nepal. Around, it was also around the time that my father died. Some other things that had happened where I was really questioning a lot of faith and just didn't feel close to God at all. Um, been interesting, these different faith crises and faith transitions. They've changed my faith fundamentally. There are things that I still struggle to believe now that if if I had not believed these things 20 years ago, I would not choose to be active in church today. But despite my misgivings and disbelief in certain things or struggles to believe to believe in certain things, I still find so much value in, in being connected with the church and serving in the church. Um, I like you being honest that the word clerk job um, wasn't working for you. And um, my feeling is, listeners, if you're in a church calling which isn't healthy for you emotionally, especially, be open with whoever, you know, you're involved with that calling and I think good, faithful Latter-day Saints open up to their, whoever's sort of their direct report, that's a business term, um, and help them understand how they feel. And that may lead to a change in calling, or you could be even more direct saying, it's time for me to be released. I don't think that makes you an unfaithful Latter-day Saint. And I love that then you transition to a calling that gave you more connection and how you seem to be self-aware enough, Marcus, to know that you need that connection on a Sunday, we're built for connection. You need connection. I need connection. Um, and there's some of those callings that don't, you know, bring connection. I remember um, when I used to go over the building at night, you know, 20, 30 years ago and lock it up at night. And I'd come home and tell my wife. And there was no, I never felt the spirit the whole time in that calling. It was just a, <laughs> in fact, the truth is I was nervous because I thought there were bad people hiding in the, <laughs> rooms on a, as I was closing the door and they'd get me and was a little scared of the dark, but I just, that's kind of a silly example, but I think it's okay to just open up about a calling that's not working for you. And, um, perhaps that would, um, and I think your story there is good. I love Thomas McConkie's book. Um, that's a book I read during my way as I assignment when I sort of went through a faith crisis, I listened to LGBTQ people tell me about being LGBTQ, and I recognized some of the narrative about people that go through a faith crisis didn't apply. It wasn't, you know, all the things sometimes we say about people that work through a faith crisis, and that book really helped me. You said something that is exactly how I felt. I realized it was normal, and what I was experiencing yeah. was normal, and I love Jared Halverson who spoke at Faith Matters, that don't let a good faith crisis go to waste. Hmm. And the non-shaming way he positioned that instead of, you know, sometimes the shame that is created in our culture around having questions or not being settled on a current issue or a historical issue, sometimes we create a feeling of shame or, you know, get in line or you're on the road to leaving the church. And you might just be on the road to staying in the church by finding safe places to open up. Um, but I love where you recognized you're very emotionally mature, um, is my feeling. And you wrote, I wrote down, participation is good for me, um, both emotionally and spiritually. So you're very self-aware of what's healthy for you and recognize that even though it doesn't sound like, you know, when I had my faith crisis listeners, I sometimes talk about as a couple dominoes that fell. Um, and when we think about fallen dominoes, when one falls, they all fall, but, um, my dominoes didn't all fall. Um, they just have dominoes that have really deep roots that keep me in the church, but the, the ones that have fallen haven't stood back up. I just learned to learn to live with fallen dominoes and a bunch of standing dominoes. And that's sort of, you know, the framework I use, but I, his book helped me feel normal. And, um, oh, yeah. so. Um, 
and I like that you've had multiple of these and you've wrestled with the difficult things. And um, I think that's good. And I would guess your safe place in your ward. And I bet you've had hundreds of conversations with people that have just know somehow and intuitively or what you shared is in your church assignment that I can go to Marcus and talk to him about the realities of my life. And I think that's a thing that we can model in our classroom discussions is, you know, there's the sin of certainty. Someone wrote a book. Um, I believe that's the name of a book. And I think if we're always so certain and so sure, I don't, you know, and I don't want to cause people to have doubts or, but I think we can create a culture where it feels safe to open up. And if, especially in our classrooms, I think that's a really a place where people need to feel safe opening up. More thoughts on faith crisis or anything come to your mind, Marcus? Uh, Doubt is not a bad thing. I think it's easy to look at doubt and doubt and faith as being different things. And I don't think they are. I think they're two sides of the same coin. The opposite of doubt and faith is actually certainty. Uh, with faith and doubt, there's both this element of uncertainty, and there's also this compulsion to move forward. You know, okay, I don't know entirely whether or not this is true, but there's some reasons that it's worth investigating. So I'm going to spend some time and energy with it. It's only when we become uncertain, or it's only when we become certain. Oh yeah, the church isn't true, or no, the church is completely true. I got to take everything. You know, that's when I think that's when we get into problems when we relegate ourselves completely to the certainty about the quote-unquote truth of, of the church or really just about anything. Um, doubt is not a bad thing. It should not be shied away from. It should not be expunged. It should not be discounted. It should be explored. It should be understood. It should be given space. It should be given voice. Um. Talk about, for people that aren't familiar with mid-singles wards, I know, you know, I don't know that space as much. It's kind of, you know, just because this is, you would know the answers to all these questions for those that don't know. Tell our listeners the age range. Do you, do you have to sort of ask to be in a mid-singles ward? And, you know, what happens when you age out? Where do you go? A mid-singles ward is, is an opt-in ward. That means you have to choose to be there. Uh, my experiences in my mid-singles ward that I'm in, um, if someone's not actively participating, then we'll move their records to a geographic ward. Um, the age range is between 31 and 45, and then the year that you turn 46, that December, your records are moved to the corresponding geographic ward. Um, right now in the D.C. metro area, they're trying a new pilot program here. There are two YSA states here in the, in the D.C. metro area north and south but what they're trying right now is those who are between 31 and 35 can choose to either be in a ysa ward or in a mid singles Mm. ward so that's a change as of just a few months ago so that's kind of an interesting thing um but yeah mid singles i mean we're most everyone in my ward uh is single never married there are some people who have been married before but obviously if if you have children especially if you have children attached to your church records, you can't be in a mid-singles ward. Um, but yeah, it's just an interesting collection of people. Uh, we tend to be more stable than YSAs, nothing against YSAs, but you know we tend to be a little mm. bit more established in our careers, um, more likely to find p- people who own homes and things like that. Uh, but there's still a lot of transition. There's still a lot of people coming and going in this group. How do you feel about going to the geographic ward um, in? A year or so is that do you look forward to that are you nervous are you, how do you handle just milestones where you maybe thought well i'll be in the mid-singles word and i'll for sure be married by the time i age out of here and i don't know if i'm putting new new thoughts in your brain that have never been there yeah oh no no i've considered these things for a long <laughs> time uh, i'm familiar with the mid-sing with the geographic ward that i would be assigned to i do know a few people in that ward um i'm it's not the end of the world I do acknowledge that it's a transition. Um, sometimes I think, oh, it won't be that bad. Other times I think, oh, I'm just going to go buy a cabin in the middle of nowhere <laughs> Maine and just move there instead at that point in time. So I don't have to worry about that transition. But now I'm kind of joking, but kind of not at the same time. Um, I'll be okay with it. I'll make it work. Um, our stake has been really good at acknowledging that there's a lot of single adults, not just those who fit into that mid-singles bucket. 
So they do, they're trying to do more and more for singles across the spectrum and not just in that 31 to 45 range. But also kind of my nature is I'm a person who who likes to gather people. Um, So I don't think it will be hard for me to adjust to being outside of a singles ward while still getting people together for stuff, whatever that stuff may be. Talk about some of the changes that have occurred in your lifetime from a policy standpoint where singles um, weren't able to step in spaces of service and now are able to serve and what that's meant to you and any hopes you have for the future of just how we can better support single Latter-day Saints. Uh, This is one thing I noticed in New York City. In terms of policy, as far as I know, uh, no no calling is off limits to single brothers in the ward or the stake, except for bishop and stake president. As far as I know, that policy has been in place for, you know, since before I've been alive. I think there's been this cultural presumption that only married men should serve in those capacities. Um, so I'm grateful that they're doing, that they're doing more to, to be more inclusive with who's serving those capacities. I saw that a lot in New York City because a lot of single adults in New York City, but the, uh, a lot of awards in New York City that I participated in saw, they made it a point to to have someone in the Relief Society presidency, the Elders Quorum presidency, who was who was single, to have single adults filling these more high profile callings. You know, you know, people. Some people will balk at inclusivity and things like that, and you know, having the stereotypical minority character in whatever position in a movie or something like that. But I think there's a lot to be said about representation, you know, because they're taking people seriously that way with representation. So I think on the whole, it's a good thing. Um, I've been grateful to serve in the capacities that I have because, you know, I get to work with people at a pretty, pretty close level, you know, and I see the struggles they're going through and I get to j- share in their joys as well. Um, but yeah. those are some of my thoughts about all of this, but it, Again, it comes back to breaking the mold about what what is what is expected culturally and what is actually possible and what is actually good. Well, that's a powerful statement. <laughs> what is possible and what is good? Um, yeah, our listeners, I think we know the quotes from Elder Gong and Elder um, Ballard that have said more than half the membership of the church is single. And I'm not a Democrat. I can't even say that word. You know what Demographer. I mean? Demographer. That's it, Marcus. But my <laughs> guess is that will continue to increase. That trend will just increase. And I wouldn't say that's a bad thing. I, you know, my, my younger self might have said, well, what are we going to do to fix that? And my older self would say, this is a good thing. This is just a maturing of the church. And um, I'm not going to try to say, you know, find a backstory and why people aren't married and and I think that keeps me from ministering and seeing their value now. Um, my younger self might have thought, Marcus, there's obviously some backstory here that if we could both connect the dots, you'd be married. Sorry, to, that's kind of painful to say that out loud. But my, you know, I've tried to be more mature in this space and just say you are a complete person now and your ability um, to fully, obviously, in society and the military and your multiple graduate programs as a project manager. Um, you're, you're a full-fledged person in all those spaces as a single human. And I think that's the same for the church. And culturally, that always hasn't been there. And we've made so much progress in that space. But, you know, let's don't look at people and think they're a second-class Latter-day Saint. These are kind of cringeworthy statements. Um, if they're not married, if they don't fit this idealistic mold that our culture has created, I think of Paul's body of the Christ, that every part of the body is needed. We can't look at one part of the body and say they're less valued. I, your lived experiences um, help us create Zion. You can go to you can go spaces that um, very, you know, every Latter-day Saint can go with the journey you've shared with us. and. Um, be a safe place for people to be opened up and give them hope. Hope and healing are two of the gifts, um, greatest gifts we can give people. And obviously the Savior's the master at that, but often he needs people like Marcus and others to lift up the hands of those that are hanging down. And I talk about the wounded 
healer a lot on this podcast is minister service will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded about the suffering which he or she speaks. The great illusion of leadership is that we think others can be led of the desert that's never been there. So you know some pretty wounding deserts, Marcus, and I don't think that's, you know, because you did something wrong, you were in these deserts, just part of mortality. And so your ability to help people, including coming on this podcast. So I really feel strongly about, you know, and I hope you use the word representation. It really resonates with me. Sometimes I, I don't do this to be critical, but I go through, I look at the chart of general authorities and, and general officers of the church. And um, in the women's organization, there are some single Latter-day Saint women, and that's a good mm-hmm. thing. And there's, I don't see as much of that on the men's side, you know? <laughs> um, and I, Unless your name is Elder Ballard. <laughs> yeah. There's Not some, that we think of him as being single, but, you know, since he is a widower. But there but, are yeah. some widowers, and that's a, you know, that's the reality of some people's life. But a never married, you know, general authority of our church or general officer of our church or board member. Perhaps there's some board members I'm not aware of our, of our um, young men's program. But I think representation really matters, including LGBTQ Latter-day Saints, younger LGBTQ Latter-day Saint, to see representation in senior church leadership at the local ward level stake or general officer level. And I have a hope that we mature as a church to be able to um, be like the Paul that he talked about in the body of Christ. And that doesn't change it. It's just part of a maturing of our culture. And representation really matters and to see people like you and um, going forward. Um, so please don't do what I do, listeners, and come across the single Latter-day Saint and try to spend your emotional capital on what you can do to see this person the way God sees them. And don't try to figure out as you're listening to them or trying to help them what's secret what's the backstory here what didn't go right what is you know because i just think that adds to someone's burden and the chance when we could lift their burden um keep sharing other thought we're kind of at the hour mark so we could wind up but we also have more time if there's more thoughts that come to your mind sure i just wanted to share something um there's some words of counsel from a state president of mine he was just released a couple of days ago but this is from a from a state conference we had a couple of years ago. You trust in Jesus in your journey. You trust in Jesus for others and for them and their journey. Um, it's easy to look at someone like myself saying, hey, you're single, but you've got a good job. You've got a good life. You know, what's wrong with you? What are you, why are you broken? Um, but my, as you were saying before, my journey is just different. And can we trust in that for other people that they're doing the right thing for themselves? Uh, I mean, you talk, I know you have a lot of guests that are, that are from the LGBTQ community and, you know, transgender, you know, gay, lesbian, you know, they, they do very different things than what we might expect from an active practicing LDS perspective. But do we trust in Jesus for them that they are doing the right thing? Uh, just because we wouldn't make those choices, does that necessarily mean those choices are wrong? Um, I don't think so. It it just takes a lot of faith and courage to trust that other people know what they're doing, to know that their relationship with Jesus Christ is sufficient for them to be making the decisions that they're making. Um, Like I said, it just, like I was talking about before with societal molds and expectations, it's hard to break out of those, but I think there's a lot of value in stepping back and examining those and what examining whether or not they're actually serving us. You're really insightful. Um, I love the breaking of the mold concept and I'm creating a culture that's loving and inclusive. And that to me is Zion listeners. It's not sameness, it's unity and diversity. And, um, you touched on ideological earlier and that's really hard right now. I think in greater Latter-day Saint community that is probably feeling some of the same things, the broader society is political ideology within our LDS faith and and coming together and still being, you know, committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ and allowing space for different political ideology. That's certainly something that's changed in my lifetime where it was this 
you know, less polarization around different political be- beliefs. It's increased significantly, as you pointed out earlier in the podcast. And it's something I worry about, and I would guess our senior leaders worry about. Um, and um, I don't see, you know, <laughs> I did hear Governor Cox and in, uh, in Utah listeners speak about disagree better. He gave a presentation at Faith Matters, and he, you know, is a Republican governor from Utah, but it is really trying to model this in his own, it's not perfect, it's really hard to model this and still be in a political party, but he's really trying to turn down the volume. One of the things he talked about in Faith Matters presentation a couple weeks ago, where he's been 10 years sober, um, Governor Cox and his wife, Abby, and he kind of joked and he says, we've been 10 years sober from cable TV. And he talked about the model. <laughs> you laugh and he talks about the model that cable TV is built on. And um, yeah. yeah, I've really tried to dial down cable TV. I don't have my head in the sand, not listening to what's going on in the world, but I try to take news from a source where it's just trying to give me the facts of what's going on versus fear about the other side. Um, so much of that is fear-based to drive ratings, both sides. And uh, you, I think we have to look inward and say, is this healthy for us? And what is this doing for me? And um, creating fear of the other side. Yeah, there's common enemy intimacy. We create this community of people that, that believe like us. But if that's, I think it's better to just, you know, have our political ideology about the facts of our own political position versus fear about the other side. So there's, I love you bringing up political ideology and, I worry about that, Marcus. Um, and you, I'm going to give you time to comment on that. Uh, listeners, when I talk about break, when Marcus talks about breaking the mold, I do think about this quote about Brene Brown that I quote sometimes, fitting in is about assessing a situation and becoming who you need to be in order to be accepted. And I'll just pause there and say, our culture does create some of that. And that's reality of probably cultures. But she then pivots and says, belonging, on the other hand, doesn't require us to change who we are. It requires us to be who we are. And you are doing that, Marcus. It takes a lot of courage to be um, Marcus um, Bowers, um, the vulnerable, unfiltered reality. But I think that's the path to being emotionally more healthy. And, and vulnerability brings vulnerability. Um, it brings authentic connection when we're honest about who we are. And and I think sometimes it helps the spirit um, come into our lives when we're honest with God about who we are. But yeah, we're, I'd love you to comment. If you want to go back to political ideology or just anything else you want to say, I think we're kind of in the closing segment. I'd love you to hear anything else you'd love to sh- share. I think that's a lot of my thoughts. Um, there's just so much value in being authentic to ourselves and being authentic with each other. Um, not judging others, not judging ourselves. I, I, I try to model the authentic authenticity and vulnerability to give others the space to do the same. It's, it's just such a better way to live. Um, like you're talking about, I love that quote from Brene, Brene Brown. I've never heard that before, but that completely resonates with me. The idea of fitting in versus belonging. That's my goal, and that's my intention is to do everything I can to make a space where people can belong and be their fully weird, authentic self, <laughs> you know, and, and be accepted and loved for those things. So, because I want those things for myself. Um, and that just makes my life more, that just enriches my life and makes, my, and makes the world better, I think, as cheesy as that may sound. Um, thank you, Marcus Bowers, for being on the podcast. Um, in the s- show notes, should let our listeners know if anybody wants to find you and contact you. Um, should we link to Facebook or Instagram or just what's the best thing to do? Sure. I will send you my Instagram handle and my um, and my where it can be found on Facebook. So, so. if you want to find Marcus listeners, look, I'll... When I post this on Facebook and Instagram, I'll tag him. Um, but if, you know, I'll also put it in the show notes so that you can D and Marcus if there's, you know, sometimes I guess like to reach out to a, a podcast guest and 
um, because it really resonates with them. And that's part of the community we're trying to create on this platform is sometimes we connect people that um, would not otherwise be connected without this podcast. So um, thank you for reaching out. I would guess there's some people that you said some things that are just the things they needed to hear, Marcus. So I think you've acted on your impressions and both of us just invite our listeners to act on any impressions you felt on how this podcast can help you or how you, if you're, you know, have stewardship responsibility or friend insights that you have now go better love and support somebody. So this is Marcus Bowers and Richard Osler signing off from another episode of Listen, Learn and Love.